Hi, I'm Nikki from Teaching Autism and welcome to the Autism and Special Education Community Podcast. Are you an autism or special education professional? Are you a teacher or therapist looking for support and new ideas? You may even be a parent, family member or carer. This podcast is perfect to help you find out more information, support and get some of your questions answered. Hi and welcome back to another episode on our Teaching Autism and Special Education Community Podcast. Today on the podcast, I am welcoming Becky from Sensory Spectacle. Now, we are really lucky because Becky is going to be doing a whole series of podcast episodes with me to focus on sensory. And we're kickstarting that series today, talking all about sensory and behaviour. Becky spends her time teaching all about sensory processing disorder and she's a huge believer in immersive learning. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Becky from Sensory Spectacle and let's kick off this sensory series with our first episode all about sensory and behaviour. Hi Becky and welcome to the podcast today. I am so excited to have you here. Could you tell my listeners a little bit about who you are and Sensory Spectacle? Yeah, of course. Hiya. So my name's Becky. I am the founder of Sensory Spectacle. So Sensory Spectacle started in 2014 and our aim is to educate about and create better awareness of sensory processing disorder. So I work all over the world, um, largely at the moment in the UK, um, and I run workshops. I have immersive training, so training where I put teachers and parents and therapists into a situation um, described by people with sensory processing difficulties, Um, and then we, we get them to reflect on that experience and ask them to think, well, how are they feeling and how might they like to be supported? Um, So that's the main part of what Sensory Spectacle does. There's lots of online resources. So I've got a YouTube channel um, and all over social media. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and lots of information being shared there about how we can support people better. Perfect. Thank you. And I will link all those in the show notes so everyone can access those really easy. And I love that immersive learning because that is perfect for our topic today about sensory and behaviour. Mm, yeah definitely I think that's why why it started it's very much the word behavior is very much misunderstood and we can talk about that in in a minute I think definitely I feel like when we say behavior people tend to just think of maybe one thing in their minds and not realize just how big a sort of spectrum behavior is then there's so many different angles of behavior yeah definitely I think it's about understanding, you know, exactly why someone might be doing the thing that they're doing. And the word behavior often is associated with something negative, or it can just be quite an easy word to use and and just say, oh, that's a behavior rather than really understanding the purpose behind the behavior. Definitely. And today I know we're going to be talking all about sensory and behavior, but I think the best thing to sort of start with is let's just talk a little bit about sensory processing disorder for the listeners, just so they can sort of keep up with where we are. So in your words, what would you define sensory processing disorder as? Okay, so uh, sensory processing disorder is um, when someone's brain isn't organizing all of the sensory messages effectively so 
All of us receive sensory information from over eight senses constantly throughout our day. And that's what is helping us to understand what's happening around us. So when something's really bright, when something's noisy, how our clothes feel, all of those kinds of things. And so for someone with a sensory processing disorder, it can mean that when their brain gets those sensory messages, it finds it difficult to understand them. So it might mean that someone feels really overwhelmed by the sound so it might seem really really noisy and so their brain's telling them it's really noisy and so that's when they might cover their ears um whereas other people their body may not recognize enough sensory input and so they may look for more so their bodies may feel like it needs more and when their bodies are responding to the sensory input it's something called regulating. So all of us are constantly regulating our bodies and we have to be in a good regulation state in order to then concentrate or to listen to someone's instructions or to sit down and learn in the classroom. That is perfect. Thank you so much. Just because I know a lot of listeners, they sort of understand a little bit about sensory processing disorder, but I think that explanation will really hit home with a lot of people and understand it on another level as well. Yeah, I just think it's really important to remember that sensory processing disorder isn't just um, impacting the autistic community. Um, research actually says it's one in 20. So even if there's people in your classrooms or wherever you work that respond to their environment in a different way and don't have an autism diagnosis, it still may mean they have difficulties organising that sensory input. Yes, that's perfect because I think a lot of people assume that sensory processing disorder is just attached to autism. They don't realise that anyone can actually have sensory processing disorder or sensory needs. Mm, Yeah, definitely, definitely. And a quick touch on your eight senses, because I know whenever I talk about eight senses, especially on my Instagram stories, I get loads of messages like, what are you on about eight senses? What are the other three? Like people don't realize there's eight senses. Could you give a quick overview what those eight senses are, please? Yeah, definitely. So um, there's five that we're probably all familiar with. So smell, taste, touch, sight and hearing. And those are known as our external senses. So all the information comes from outside of our body into our body. So when we see something, light enters our eye. Um, And then we've got three senses that we commonly talk about relating to sensory processing disorder that are internal. So all of the messages come from inside of our body. And that's our proprioceptive sense that gives us information from our joints and our muscles to tell us where our body is. There's our vestibular sense that gives us information about movement. And then there's our interoceptive sense, which gives us internal messages telling us maybe when we're hungry, when we're tired, uh, when we need to go to the toilet, when we might be feeling a little bit anxious or nervous. And our interoceptive sense is massively important to help us also understand our emotions So those are the eight senses that we commonly talk about. There are lots more, but that's currently the ones that we focus down on. That was perfect. Thank you. I know that I find those eight senses fascinating, especially when you really start to look at functions of behavior and you really start to look at all those different senses. It's amazing how deep you can dive with them. Oh, definitely. I I mean, I learn so much every single day just about what my body's doing, let alone reading about what these senses are doing. 
Yes, definitely. And it really does make you think about ourselves as well. And I know we've sort of touched on when you were talking about the senses and sensory processing disorder, about how we can be under and oversensitive. And can you give some examples of just what under and oversensitive differences are so people can start to maybe think of that in their mind when they're looking at their children and their students? Yeah, definitely. So um, if we're thinking about modulation difficulties so that's the terminology that maybe a therapist or a practitioner may use that's where we may recognize someone who is over responsive so maybe they're really really sensitive to sound or to light so they may cover their ears they might put their fingers in their ears they might squint their eyes or cover their eyes um it might be that they try and generally avoid things so uh, removing themselves from particular rooms or refusing to move for example if it's their vestibular sense and their sense of movement whereas people who are under responsive there there are people that are looking for more sensory input so um it might be that they are constantly chewing on things it might be that someone is fidgeting around in their seat quite a lot, moving, spinning, walking, jumping, um, any way that they're getting more input into their body. They may also lick things. They may also um, flicker things, play with shadows, any way that their body can get in extra, more sensory input. And wow, there are so many ways that that can sort of take place for the students and children as well like you say there's so many different ways that they can really give themselves that input that they need and I know today with sensory and behavior I think it'd be really interesting for us to talk about how those needs can have an effect on behavior because I know I seen on your Instagram I believe maybe a couple of weeks ago and you had a quote from someone that said something like they find it so noisy in restaurants, they can't tell if they're full or not when they're eating. And that really stuck with me just because I thought that's not something I would ever have thought of when my children didn't know when to stop eating. I wouldn't have even thought of it being the noise in the restaurant. Yeah, definitely. So all of the work that Sensory Spectacle does is based on people with sensory processing difficulties so we work very closely and they give us their experiences so you know how their sensory processing impacts their daily activities and so that eating one that mealtime example is is a really big one partly because it's relating to our interoceptive sense or our internal sense but also because like you said it's something that you might not necessarily think about ourselves um other things may be um, where someone's described their vision and hearing to be like an untuned television. So Temple Grandin, who is very um, articulate at being able to talk about her sensory processing, has described that's how her, her sight and her hearing feels like to her. So she can see things and she can hear things, but piecing it together sometimes just is quite difficult. And if we imagine ourselves that kind of old school black and white TV where the picture's trying to tune in, how frustrating that might be if you can see it, but you just can't quite piece it together to understand it. Definitely. I can't even imagine how frustrating that must be at times as well. And especially when maybe we don't really think about that with our children and students. And maybe there's ways that we could be helping with that, that we haven't even 
thought of because we haven't put ourselves in that position. And I think that's why it's really great that you offer that immersive learning so people can really put themselves in that situation and experience it for themselves. Yeah, and I think that's the most powerful thing that especially professionals have kind of taken away from the training. Someone um, wrote to me once and said that the the experiential side of our workshops actually helped them to make sense of the theory. And I think if we if we all recognise things through our own bodies, then we're more likely to empathise and maybe understand how to support someone or how someone might be feeling. Um, and then we're going to feel like we're supporting them better because we can find more effective ways to, to help that person, whether it's a student or your child. Definitely, because I know a few times maybe I've spoken to teachers and parents and we've thought maybe it's a smell or something. You know, we're really trying to figure out what maybe it could be. And people are really surprised that, why would smell have, you know, why would they have a knock on effect on their behavior? And I think really putting yourself into that position to experience it would help you understand the theory, like you say. Oh, definitely. And actually, smell smells one of the most common processing difficulties, but the hardest one for us to recognize. And that's because we don't walk around holding our noses or talking about, you know, smells that we don't like. We will just do something to try and avoid it or remove it. So we might spray something or open a window. Whereas for our students, we may recognise the emotional response to that smell. And that's purely because of the way that we process smells in our brain. If someone has experienced something negative relating to a smell, so a really good example in schools is dining halls. So where they eat their dinner may also be where they have PE. And if they've just had PE in there and that room smells of sweaty socks and T-shirts, then when they go back in to then have their lunch, it can be really difficult for them to essentially block out that smell. And so it might mean that they feel really distracted and can't follow instructions or actually they just physically want to get themselves out of out of that room. That is a perfect example because I don't think a lot of people would have necessarily thought of Maybe it's a smell from what happened here before lunchtime and maybe people just assume it's the smell of the dinner. But it's nice that you've sort of put it in a different way as well to make people really think outside that box and think what happened before dinner or whatever the situation is and really look at those smells as well. Mm, yeah, and it's a really popular one. Mealtimes are very difficult anyway. And it's one time of the day that we might feel like they want to control because if Every other part of their day is either very structured or they feel like there's less control for them. And so if they can manage that one part, it's that meal time. And so they may choose the certain food that they eat. They might sit in a certain seat in the in the room or they might just refuse to go in there. And that can all be relating to smell. Definitely. And I've really had quite a bit of experience over the years with students who really feel the need that they have to have that control at lunchtime, because like you say, they just don't get a lot of control through the rest of the day from what lessons they go into, who they're going to be working with, how they get to school. They don't have a lot of control. And like you say, that lunchtime is the perfect time and opportunity for them to have a little bit of control for their own self as well. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I think a worry there is when uh, professionals 
panic that someone isn't eating at mealtime, so at lunchtime. And if you can just imagine, if you've had a morning where you've been trying really hard just to regulate yourself, so to block out a sound that's really bugging you or to really focus on the teacher and the words that they're saying to be able to do their work, by the time lunchtime comes, they might not want to be in a space filled with everybody else um, because actually they just want that time out to be able to calm themselves back down again. Yes, I really like that. The thought of where maybe they've just had too much on their plate that morning as well and they just really need that time to themselves. And I think that leads really nicely to our next question, which was how do we sort of think that sensory needs or traits have an effect on behaviour? Mm, so I think often we we misunderstand what I refer to as sensory characteristics as these negative behaviours. So a sensory characteristic is something that someone is doing in order to support their body, so in order to feel good. Um, and when they're feeling good, that's when they can concentrate and learn and attend best. So if we're recognising it as a behaviour, our natural instinct may well be to ask someone to stop doing something or we may remove something. So say if someone's chewing on their pen or chewing on their top or chewing on something that they found, the chewing can actually be a way, a strategy that they're supporting themselves to regulate. And so if we then remove that chewing that person isn't then getting what their body needs. So they may well find another way of getting that sensory input in or just find it really difficult to focus. So some of these kind of classic behaviours might be things like someone that's fidgeting constantly with things all around them or maybe the person next to them. It might be um, someone fidgeting in their chair, so moving around, changing position, moving their chair. Um, it might be someone that always speaks really loudly. Um, that's a really effective coping strategy for someone who's finding it really difficult to regulate the sound around them. Because if their voice is the loudest, they're going to find it easier then to block out some of these other sounds. So... If we recognise a sensory characteristic and try and understand what someone is trying to give themselves from that sensory input, we're more likely to then recognise that it's a sensory need rather than a negative behaviour. So maybe something for attention, for example. Yes, definitely. I think people can be so quick to try and want to help they're doing it out of a place of help but they want to stop that what they see as a negative behavior like you say because they don't maybe understand that it's something the student really needs but a lot of times I do think the stuff that our students need like the things that they do can be used as motivation for them as well and something that they can still have and just do this first then you can have it so sort of like a reward as well but you're still giving them what they need and you can sort of control in different areas like we had a student who when she was anxious she just needed to rip and she wanted to rip anything and everything because that's what it was when she was in that heat of the moment she didn't know what was okay to rip or not and in the end everyone wanted to stop her ripping and take everything away and we just gave her a tray of stuff she could rip and that was her sort of not reward but she could go there she knew that it was hers and 
she was so much better when she was able to have that time. Oh, definitely. I think a really common question that I'm asked from teachers is, is it a distraction? So by providing a way of kind of meeting someone's sensory needs, so, you know, having something to fidget with, having something to chew on, many teachers feel that that's then going to distract that student from then learning. However, if it's part of what they need in order to concentrate, it needs to be part of their learning or part of their routine. And for some people, they may constantly need it while they're studying and learning. Whereas other people, like your student, may need it at certain points throughout the day. And that's when we might start to think about um, a sensory lifestyle, a sensory plan, a sensory profile, which I know we may talk about in the future. So um, thinking about what is it that that person's doing and how can we support it is actually going to benefit that child's learning rather than be a distraction. Definitely. And I think we all found quickly that when people were rushing to stop the ripping, it was making things so much worse in the long run because she couldn't self-regulate. She didn't know what she could do, what she couldn't do. And then all of a sudden things got very overwhelming and we weren't getting any learning done. And then in the end, when we just give that tray of, you know, old catalogs, magazines, stuff that we brought in, the learning was so much easier for her and she was so much better for it as well, just by having that one simple tray. Yeah, definitely. And another thing that I think is really important to remember is that our sensory processing is constantly adjusting so if I'm in a really noisy environment I can reassure myself that I'm okay and I can essentially try and block out some of that sound however if someone has sensory processing disorder they may find that difficult and so they may also recognize throughout a day that someone may seem to fluctuate so they may seem to be seeking out sensory input and then at other points may try and avoid sensory input And so sometimes that can be quite difficult for some people to recognize. So, um, for example, I had a young boy I would look after and he would come in wearing ear defenders. And um, so ear defenders are something that you might use to help reduce um, sound processing. It's not suitable for everyone, but people that like them, they can be really effective. So he'd come in wearing his ear defenders, he would then throw them on the floor and he'd run up and down the corridor singing. And when he had finished running, he'd then go over to a radio and turn up the radio really loud and start dancing. Um, And then we had a keyboard, a musical keyboard, and he would go and play music on there as well. So you can imagine this environment then was really, really loud and noisy, filled with music and people talking. And then he would get to a point where he would start to hum and it would be a hmm. So it would just be a one tone, quite a low hum. And for that young boy, he was doing it to then communicate to us, but also to help him then regulate out, so block out the sounds around him because he had then recognised that actually he was now overly sensitive so was making that humming sound to reduce some of that auditory input so we would then offer him his ear defenders to help him to regulate back down or just go to a quieter area in in the setting and so sometimes I know that teachers will try and put in strategies and just feel like it's not effective however 
it's really important to remember that actually things may well change throughout the day and the best person to consult and to observe is that student themselves. Yes, definitely. I love that example you've given with that student because I think a lot of people, when we say once, oh, he didn't like that loud noise, they instantly think they don't like every single loud noise, like they must have a quiet life and that's it. But like you say, it differs through the day as well. And sometimes he liked to have his headphones, his ear defenders on. And other times he liked that loud music. I think we really do like you say, I have to connect with our students, spend time getting to know them, listening to them either verbally or non-verbally and looking at their cues and just adjusting through the day for them as well. Definitely. I think before we can even start to um, really support someone's sensory needs, we do have to know that person. So, you know, parents are great, teachers are great, but you're going to observe different characteristics at home to what a teacher may observe in school and so a classic kind of question from a parent is the teacher says that my child doesn't do this in school so they may come home and they may at home be constantly on the move and not sit still um up and about and doing things but in school they're able to sit down they're able to get on with their work and there's lots of different reasons for that but what we have to do is we have to try and recognise for that student their overriding sensory needs. That's something that I explain on all of my workshops and online training. But ultimately, it means we look at everything that that person is doing in response to their senses. So if they're chewing on things, if they're covering their ears, if they're rocking, if they're flickering things, if they're making noises and we then look at all of those sensory characteristics and try and identify, are there any senses that repeat themselves in those characteristics? So if most of them relate to our tactile sense, it may well be that that student is, say, seeking out extra tactile input throughout all of those characteristics. However, it looks different every time that they're doing that. Yes, that's a great example because I know I speak to so many parents and then teachers and they're always so worried because they're seeing something the other one isn't and then they start to worry that maybe it's something they are doing wrong and like you say there's just so many things that come into play and there's so many ways that our students can seek that same sensory need as well. Definitely I mean if you think if if our students are constantly having to support themselves because they're the one recognizing what's happening in their body so they will always be trying to seek out or avoid the sensory input their body needs and it's our job then to be the detective to try and work out well why are they doing that or um how could I support them better or how could they block out that specific sound more effectively or um become more regulated with light touch for example so labels and seams in clothing can be a, a big difficulty Yes, I know we've had to sort of try so many different clothes with many of our students and I feel for so many parents who are trying to find labelless clothes or cut out labels and really trying to help their children that way as well. Mm. So a good example there if we're, if we're looking at overriding sensory needs for someone who finds labels and seems difficult is some of the other things that they might do, do during their day might be 
overly sensitive, say, if someone brushes past them. So they may just brush past them really lightly in the corridor. But what we might then observe from that student may well be them pushing someone away. Because for that student, that light touch actually is similar to the label and it's just too overwhelming it's too much for their body to manage and so they've gone into something called fight and flight which is where their body's just telling them to protect themselves and to remove everything around them that's possibly a hazard to them yes and I think so many of us can sometimes miss that first little bit of what's happened with that brushing past and just see a student maybe lashing out or getting physical and we instantly think the worst without sort of thinking about why and seeing that someone brushed past them and seeing that really they were just protecting themselves in a sort of panic sometimes too Mm, definitely yes because that's that's a really good example of where we will recognize maybe a behavior rather than identifying or considering the sensory element to why we're recognizing that behavior Yes, and I know that we touched then on sensory seeking behaviours as well. And I know that a lot of parents and teachers get really stressed when they're messaging me because they just they don't know how to support their students. Do you have any sort of tips that you could share with them for ways that they can support students? I know it's going to be quite a blanket one because there's so <laughs> many types of sensory seeking behaviours. Yeah, so I, I guess the first thing that we need to recognize is is actually recognize which sensory system are they seeking input for so are they flickering something in front of their eyes and in front of a light and looking for more visual input or are they dancing around on the floor at shadows again for more visual input so you need to first of all recognize what sensory system might they be seeking and then add in provide something that gives them that similar sensory input so for example it may be within your work if you've got someone that's a visual seeker um thinking about the colors that you use thinking about contrast so there's ways that our senses develop as well and our senses first um process contrasted things so essentially black and white so when we're a baby that's what we're seeing most effectively clearest and so if we resort back to having say a backdrop or an activity which is on a black and white pattern you're going to be engaging drawing someone into that in order to help them to focus say on the activity they're doing on the table on top of it or it might be that you explore other colors or it might be that you use lighting um tactile seekers so for people that like to fidget with things I would suggest making sure that as much of your teaching as possible can be doing things so can be making can be that kinesthetic learning so maths when you're doing counting can you have blocks can you have shapes can you make things because that's essentially what their body is looking for it's looking to be using those fingers and exploring different textures um it might be if someone's seeking out movement you need to add in some movement as well so you mentioned earlier about this girl that rips um it may be that some people actually do five jumps before they sit down and if you can incorporate that into part of the work that's going to be really effective for all of your students not just one that requires that physical input before they then 
focus on an activity. It may be thinking about sound, so adding in white noise, um, which is the noise that we now tend to play for um, a baby if they're finding it difficult to sleep. Um, it's the sounds that we're most familiar with. And then if we've got people who um, seek out movement, I know in classrooms this can be really difficult, actually vibration is a really, really effective way to provide someone with that sensation of movement so getting a massaging cushion popping it behind them or under their feet they're getting that sense of movement without the physical need to move so there's lots of ways that we can provide sensory strategies for seeking behaviors but the most important thing really is to look at what sensory system are they actually seeking because a lot of the time that can be misunderstood Yes, those are so many perfect tips that I just know people are going to be writing those down as fast as they can and really trying to use them. And it was really interesting what you said about the movements before work. I actually used to have this little worksheet, like nothing fancy at all. It just had a couple of different movements on there. And we used to use it with one student before sitting for speech. And to be honest, I totally didn't even think of it as from a sensory point of view when I made it I just knew that he needed something I just didn't know what mm -hmm. and we used to do these little actions like clapping hands jumping up and down on the spot and things and from the time that I introduced that our speech sessions were I would say at least 100% more successful like he could last for the full session and then when you were talking about it from a sensory point of view I actually started to think I wonder if maybe I read that wrong and although it still worked it was actually a sensory need that I was meeting with him yeah most likely I think all students benefit from that movement which is why having play times and break times are so important but just things like you know, if we're thinking about holding a pencil or we're thinking about doing typing on a computer, so with our fingers, we may notice that someone before they're doing those activities is, say, clapping their hands really loudly or maybe banging the table or grabbing things um, because they know when they're holding their pencil, they're going to have to use their fingers. And so, activities or characteristics that relate to their fingers may well be then recognized before doing specific activities. So scratching and grabbing and poking and um, squeezing things can all be ways that someone's waking up their fingers before they then write or type. Yes, those are perfect examples and something that maybe a lot of us wouldn't think of, especially when you say before holding a pencil and a keyboard. And we actually had someone write in and they were asking, how do we tell the difference between if what a child is displaying is a sensory need or behavior before work? And I think that ties in really nicely with what you just said there. Yeah, so I think to answer that question, really, there does need to be some time of observing and really trying to get to know that student. So is it the fact that they don't like that particular subject? <laughs> is it the fact that, yes, they do need some kind of sensory input in order to, to regulate? Or is it the fact that they are cheeky like most children and they're finding a way to distract themselves because we can't forget that children are going to be children at the end of the day and so yes we need to recognize someone's sensory needs in order to help them to learn but we do also then have to relate that back to the person and think about why might they be doing it 
Yes, and I loved what you said as well about how we can have some children who are just cheeky and full of fun as well. And because a lot of our children, they just want to be liked and they want us to be happy and they want to make us smile and laugh. And sometimes if you react in a certain way to something and they think that it's made you happy or made you laugh, you've sort of made it worse for yourself because they're going to do it again because they're trying to please you. And I think that's a way that they connect with us as well. Most definitely. Um, and I've obviously had some very amusing situations <laughs> where that's happened. But um, I think going back to the sensory versus behaviour question is if if a sensory need is supported as a behaviour. So right at the beginning, I said, if we were to stop a behaviour, so to ask someone to stop chewing on something, or if I was to remove the thing that they were chewing on, or if I was to only give them the thing that they're chewing on as a reward, so when you've done your work, you can then get your chewing. What you'll notice if it's a sensory need is that actually that student will find it very difficult to then concentrate, or very difficult to then find a way of, of supporting themselves to do the work because actually that chewing is the one thing that they needed in order to help concentrate just like your student where you gave in the movement exercises before the speech sessions if he didn't have that you found that he was finding it difficult to focus and was then moving around while probably you were trying to do the session as well so that's a really clear way of trying to recognize if it's a sensory need or a behavior you'll notice an obvious response if it's a sensory need and you remove it because you're supporting it as a behaviour. Yes, and especially with that student, I honestly introduced it just because I felt like maybe he's bored of the session. I was trying to brainstorm different, you know, theories of why isn't he enjoying it? Why won't he come and sit down? And I introduced that just as a little bit of fun. And instantly, it was literally by the second session, I could see such a huge change in him, such a huge change in the way the sessions went. And it just had six really easy movements. And we'd start with two and then I'd let him choose them as the session went on, either when he needed them or when he wanted them. And that worked really well. And like I said, that sort of thing that I put into place, it wasn't anything fancy. And I think that's the key. It doesn't have to be fancy or expensive or all sort of the bells and whistles to help support our students. No, definitely. I think so. I have um, a rule that I don't ever spend more than $12 on anything. So £10. And if I was to spend more on that, it probably wouldn't would be wasted. So the, the students we're supporting are already finding things in their environment to support themselves. And so most of the time we can support these sensory needs through things already around us. So thinking about seating in classrooms, maybe just doing part of the lesson where everyone's standing up or everyone's crouching down like a frog or everyone's sitting on a different kind of cushion on their seat. Those different types of sensory elements are all going to help to wake up and keep that focus for their students. Yes, and those are even better because they're free as well. We can do that for free. We haven't got to buy anything to make our students stand up to work. We don't need to buy anything to crouch down with them. Like you say, it doesn't have to be expensive. Those are things we can do straight away in our classroom today, tomorrow, if we wanted to. Yeah, definitely. And most of the best strategies are 
the things that we're already doing that are free. Like I said, you don't need to spend lots of money on things to provide the, the right sensory support for our students. Definitely. And I just have one final question today, which is from a member of the audience. And she just wanted to know, how can she tell if her student is overwhelmed? Because like I think we've spoken about your student earlier where he likes all that loud music and things he likes to come in and really interact with the staff and he claps with them he giggles with them but then sometimes that giggling can become erratic how does she know when to stop or help that student before he becomes too overwhelmed Mm, yeah so um really good question and and some of it may be relating to someone's developmental level um and so that's really important to remember when we're thinking about sensory processing because we are all sensory beings so from the moment we're born we're using our senses so it's the thing that we're most familiar with um and so giggling for example if you think about when you giggle you get that internal feeling as well and so you may well easily be flooded with emotion as well as observing say the response that you get from your teacher who you're laughing with because you'll see on their face a big smile you'll see probably hear a sound that's coming from their giggle and they may well be also empathizing and feeling that happiness or that funniness from whoever they're laughing with and so it can be really difficult and again it goes back to making sure that we recognize the sensory needs for that particular person so some people, when they are overwhelmed, they may completely shut down. And by shutting down, they will maybe try and remove themselves. They may sit quietly and cover their ears and bury their head. Um, or they may they simply be in fight and flight and just run. And if you're with someone who, say, could looks like they could seek out that sensory input all day, so laughing and laughing and laughing and then all of a sudden it's now too much. You could try when you're in that situation timing things. So if there's a particular sensory input. So I know lots of um, students that I used to support absolutely loved water for all different types of sensory reasons. But some children would then get overwhelmed by maybe them being overstimulated from that sensory input and so we may well use that timed as well so use it as a support strategy but also use it as a timed activity and the more you get to know your student the more you'll be able to identify certain changes in their characteristic when they're then becoming overwhelmed so for example you if someone's laughing you may notice the slightest of change in the sound of that laugh or a look on their face and that can then be your indicator to say look this person's now becoming overwhelmed I need to try and calm this environment and you may do that with something weighted or with some deep pressure squeezing or maybe some white noise so really calming sounds something that's then going to help to soothe and change that sensory element in their environment that was really helpful. Thank you. And so informative as well. And I think the biggest key to pretty much anything is really getting to know our students, knowing them as individuals and sort of looking and recognising those signs to help them as well. 
Mm, definitely. And try and write down as much as you can, because things will change over time. You may feel that one student's sensory needs have totally changed a year later or a term later. But actually, their sensory needs can be the same. It's just the way they're supporting themselves has changed because they've got older or they've learned a different technique because they're in a different classroom or in a different seat. Yes, so true. And especially with this situation from the member of the audience where she talks about giggling because giggling is just so infectious as well. And I think that's one of the easiest ones to quickly become overwhelmed with for anyone. Oh, definitely. And I think for any professional, when you see someone giggling, that's a really pleasant experience to share with someone. And we want our students to be happy. So we're going to embrace that. It's just how we can then help that student to regulate those internal emotions as well definitely that was perfect and I know that would be so helpful for her as well to take away and use with her student so that is pretty much all of our questions that I have for you today about sensory and behavior I just have one more and that is what would you like to be the one takeaway someone took away from this podcast episode about sensory and behavior I think the one thing I would like people to take away is to try and change the way that we use the word behavior when we're thinking about sensory needs. So really do try and recognize what sensory purpose that characteristic, that behavior has for that student. And that in itself is going to mean so much more because it means you'll then be ready to support that student in all different types of environments. That was perfect. And I really think there are so many ways that we can view behaviour as a positive as well. It doesn't have to be negative. Definitely. And I think it's really important to recognise and reward that positive behaviour because a behaviour is just a response to an environment. And a lot of the time, like I said, it's at that negative association we use it for. Definitely. And I know over on your Instagram, you share so many great quotes and little bits of information as well that I know have really made me step back and think and put myself into the position. So if people want to find you, you are at Sensory Spectacle on Instagram as well, aren't you? Yep. Instagram and Facebook. So whatever you use best. Yep. Perfect. I will link all those in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on today, Becky, to talk all things sensory and behavior. And I can't wait to do future episodes with you, which I know everyone is going to really enjoy learning all things sensory as well. Brilliant. Yeah, no, it's been great. Thank you, Becky. Cheers. Bye-bye. I don't know about you, but that podcast episode, listening to Becky talking all things sensory and behavior, was a huge eye-opener for me and I loved it and I cannot wait to share the rest of the episodes in this sensory series that me and Becky have got planned for you. In the meantime, head over to the show notes and check out all the links for things that we've talked about today and Becky has also given us a discount code for the next 12 months that you can use to save on any of her training courses if you want to take them. If you do have a spare few moments today before you log off, I would love for you to leave us a review on any of the platforms you're using about this podcast. Thank you for listening and I'll speak to you again soon.